regularly attend these banner lectures, this introduction so far should sound quite familiar to, I guess, dozens of others that I've done uh, before. Today, though, I hope you'll indulge me if I say just a little more than usual. And that's because this is the first time I've introduced to a VHS audience a speaker whom I have, whom I have known since grade school. <laughs> Adam Goodhart and I are both natives of Philadelphia and attended the same school, Germantown Friends School. He was one year ahead of me. And I can't help but share an enduring memory of Adam and his family from those years that you will not find, I think, in any of his online biographies. I promise, it's not embarrassing. I have another story that I could share that I won't. <laughs> you can come up afterwards and ask me individually. Anyhow, this memory um, comes about about every February. Um, if you tuned into local Philadelphia TV news on February 14th, any year that uh, I was growing up, you would see Adam's father on television. Now, you might ask, why would that be? Well, uh, Adam's dad, Bernard Goodhart, was a Philadelphia judge. And the footage on February 14th was not what you usually see going in and out of a Philadelphia courtroom. You know, a mobster with a jacket over his head. No, this was something very different. Because each year, um, Adam's dad married dozens of betrothed couples who lined up for the special privilege of having his father tie the knot for them. Because after all, who wouldn't want to say that they had been married on Valentine's Day and have their marriage license signed by a Judge Good Hart? <laughs> Pretty romantic stuff, if you ask me. Now, I understand that he has since retired from the bench, but I think what a neat thing to have your family name known for. And early on, I think it's pretty clear in looking back, Adam seemed determined to make the Goodhart name known for other things as well. Even in the highly charged academic atmosphere that was our Quaker prep school, he stood out for the power of his intellect. If memory serves, he was one of the students who in high school was reading Thucydides and Herodotus in the original Greek. How many of you can claim that? I don't see any hands going up. In one way or another, you can see it was clear he was destined to make a mark, and that is exactly what he's done. From Philadelphia, he went on to Cambridge and was a much decorated student at Harvard before he graduated in 1992. After college, he went on to an impressive career in journalism, writing for a wide array of magazines and newspapers, from the Atlantic to National Geographic to the Wall Street Journal, Playboy magazine, I believe, if memory serves correctly from your bio somewhere, and quite a few others. Now, in 2006, Washington College in Chestertown, Maryland, named Adam the director of the multidisciplinary C.V. Star Center for the study of the American experience. While holding his position at Washington College, he continues to write, comment, and speak all over the country, as he is for us today. His work has recently achieved a higher profile um, by being a regular contributor to the New York Times' incredible Civil War series, Disunion, which I recommend to you if you have not already seen it. It takes the war sort of day by day, and an entry each day responds to some uh, issue, a description of an issue that was being waged 150 years ago. And this year saw a publication of his wonderful book, 1861, which is, I think, among the very best things written about the torturous road to the Civil War. Um, it's recently started appearing on lots of lists. He just told me it's on Barnes & Noble's top 25 books of the year. 
So a great Christmas gift idea, and one which he will be signing up in the shop afterwards. And I think very interestingly, his work, both in the New York Times and other ways, was cited as being a big persuasion to helping um, President Obama come to the decision to name Fort Monroe a national monument, which happened earlier this month. So as this first year of the Civil War sesquicentennial comes to an end, this lecture, I think, will help us pull together some of the drama and the tumult of that year and present vividly some characters who populated the era. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome to Adam Goodhart, who will speak to us about 1861, the Civil War Awakening. Thanks. Uh Thanks very much, Paul, for that story you shared, and even more for the stories you didn't share. Um, and uh, I hope I don't disappoint anyone um, by saying that I will not be signing any marriage certificates after this program, although I'll be happy to sign your copies of 1861. Um, no, it, it is a pleasure and an honor to be here um, at the VHS. I'd like to thank Paul. I'd like to thank uh, his staff and the members of the board who have warmly welcomed me here, and I'd also especially like to thank Nelson Langford, the um, Vice President for Programs here, who is himself the author of a splendid, splendid book, Cry Havoc, um, one of the best books um, about the beginning months of the, of the Civil War. So um, it was a pleasure to know him through his work before coming here, and it's an even greater pleasure to meet him in person. Um, I, uh, I just came down uh, this morning, as, as Paul has just um, revealed, he and I are both dyed-in-the-wool Yankees. Um, I should be wearing a blue suit instead of a gray one, I'm sorry. But um, I drove down this morning um, from the enemy capital, if you'll pardon me for saying so, from, uh, from Washington, D.C., which I guess some people still consider the enemy capital today. Um, and, uh, you know, as always, I couldn't help but think, gosh, if they'd had I-95 in 1861, it would have been so much easier. Um, a lot quicker, anyhow. Uh, but actually, I, I did um, also, apart from those musings, find myself thinking about um, some of the uh, stuff that I had read and some of the stuff I'd found in researching my book that was in the Richmond Press during the Civil War. Now, um, I haven't looked at the Times-Dispatch's editorial page lately, but I suspect they've toned things down a little bit <laughs> since 1861, when um, toned down was not necessarily the first thing that would spring to mind. I'll just read you um, a sample of the things that they were, that they were saying um, at that point as the, uh, as the war truly ramped itself up. Um, here is the Richmond Dispatch on May 18th, 1861. Well, let them come, those minions of the North. We'll meet them in a way they least expect. We will glut our carrion crows with their beastly carcasses. <laughs> yes, from the peaks of the Blue Ridge to the Tidewater, we will strew our plains and leave their bleaching bones to enrich our soil. <laughs> oh, my. Well... I'm, uh, I'm glad, uh, judging from all of, all of you, uh, that the uh, southern, welcome, well, southern Welcome has warmed itself up considerably in the past 150 50 years. Um, now, 
Although I, I did come down here from Washington, and I spend about half of my time um, living in Washington, D.C., I spend the other half of my time, as, as Paul told you, working and teaching at Washington College, which is a little college on the eastern shore of, of Maryland. How many of you have been to the eastern shore of Maryland before? Oh, great. Fantastic. A lot of, a lot of people. Um, so those of you who have been there know that it's a sort of a a land that time forgot, a kind of an 18th century brigadoon stranded there in the middle of the Northeast uh, Corridor. And you also know that um, it's actually in, in many ways a very Southern feeling place. Now, um, a, a few weeks ago I spoke in um, the Republic of South Carolina, I mean the state of South Carolina. <laughs> Sorry, I just... Yeah, so I spoke in South Carolina, and not only did I speak in South Carolina, but I spoke at Clemson University at something called the Strom Thurmond Institute, which is when you really, really are in South Carolina. And when I was, when I was there, and I, I talked a little bit as, as well there about um, Maryland and about it, about it being in, in many ways a very um, southern place, I got all these very puzzled <laughs> expressions around the room. Those Yankees up in Maryland? But uh, in fact, especially areas like the Eastern Shore were very divided during the Civil War. Um, on my first visit to, to Chestertown, where Washington College is, is located, uh, I was shown the Civil War monument on our main street. And it's a very simple two-faced granite slab, one face facing north and the other facing south. It was put up in 1917. And on one side is a couplet it says, under the sod, the blue and the gray, waiting alike the judgment day. And inscribed beneath are the names of local boys who fought for the Union. That side, of course, faces north. On the opposite side, the couplet says, under the sod, the gray and the blue, each to his call of duty true. And there's a similar list with many of the same last names of local boys who went off and fought for the Confederacy. So it, it very neatly encapsulated this division that could be found in, in the middle states of which Maryland was one and of, of which indeed Virginia was one. Virginia and Maryland in many ways, um, and I think this is something actually that, that really comes across if you want to read more about it, uh, even then as in my book, you should look at Nelson Langford's um, book. Virginia and Maryland really were in some ways sort of twin or, or doppelganger um, states, one of which ended up going with the Union and one with the, with the Confederacy. But that neat geometry of division uh, that they expressed in 1917 wasn't the entire story. And that too is clear from the monuments there in front of the courthouse in our little town, um, because actually there's a little monument next to it, another Civil War monument, almost literally in its shadow, considerably smaller. And that one wasn't put up until 1999. And as you might guess, that's the monument that actually commemorates the vast majority of local boys who went off and fought in the Civil War. And those are the men who enlisted in the US colored troops, about 400 from our little tiny county um, in, uh, in Maryland. And they were completely left off the 1917 memorial and only commemorated when actually the black community got together and pooled funds to build this monument about 10 years ago. So this geometry is complicated and is much more than a question of north facing one way and south facing the other. Now, this 
complication, this complicated story, is something that was further reinforced for me by some of my um, later experiences as, as I spent more time on the Eastern Shore, as I taught history and American studies at Washington College. Um, I had many other opportunities to get a sort of a visceral sense of these complicated fissures um, around issues of slavery and around the Civil War itself. Now, as a teacher, I'm a strong believer in, um, well, what the, what the Marines call boots on the ground um, approach to history. I really think that it's impossible to study history if you just sit inside with your face in a book, much as I adore books and, and history books especially. Um, I think that you have to get out there and walk the fields and the trails and explore the places where history happened in the past. Try to um, go out there and, and commune with some of, the, some of the ghosts. So that's what I try to do with my, with my students at Washington College every year. And one of the places where I regularly take them is a very, very old plantation just outside of Chestertown, a place called Poplar Grove. And this plantation, um, even by the standards of the Eastern Shore, where there are a lot of very old family farms, even by the standards of Virginia, where there are some even older um, historic properties, this is a very, very historic place. It's been in the same family since 1669. Pretty long time. Although I, I do have to admit the, uh, the house itself is um, considerably more modern. It was built only in the 1720s, 1730s, something like that. Um, anyhow, I, I take my students um, to this place. I, I drive the little mini bus from campus. I'm sort of an all-purpose you know, teacher and historian. I drive mini buses too. Um, and as we're turning down the long driveway, this long dirt um, road lined with trees that look like they're about to fall over, um, and huge overgrown 200-year-old boxwoods, I always say to my students, fasten your seatbelts, ladies and gentlemen. We are now leaving the 21st century. Because it's one of those places, and perhaps you've been to them too, where it really feels like you've stepped through a portal in time. The old crumbling house um, hasn't been lived in um, really in, in at least 20 years. The old family cemetery just outside it is overgrown with, with weeds. And uh, the old 18th century slave cabin that was standing when I took my first group of students there less than 10 years ago is now a pile of, a pile of rotting boards um, smothered, in, smothered in vines. Um, but it was on one particular visit several years ago that a new adventure happened in this house that we hadn't quite had before. And that was that we began to explore something that I'd seen in the attic before but never really investigated. And that was a big trove of family papers. Family papers that were um, filed according to our um, traditional archival system on the Eastern Shore of Maryland, which is to say they were stuffed into like old lard cans and peach <laughs> baskets and steamer trunks and things like that. Um, thousands and thousands of pages, willy-nilly, that clearly hadn't been looked at in a very, very long time. I'd mostly left those papers undisturbed on previous visits. They were the uh, property of the descendants, a family who I'm good friends with. I didn't want to disturb them. They were private property. But on this particular trip, um, my students um, became very curious about these documents and started digging around. There's, there's one student in particular who was sort of irrepressible in his curiosity. How many of you are or have been teachers before? 
So those of you who are or have been teachers know that there is, in almost every class, if you're lucky, one student who is irrepressible in her or his curiosity, who sits there sort of bouncing up and down, you know, in the front row, always has the hand going up. Well, that was this particular guy, Jim. And Jim was a remarkable guy because um, he also, he's not just a college student, he's actually a few years older than most of, of our college students. He's a U.S. Marine who served in Iraq and Afghanistan on combat missions and was very interested in military history. Became very interested in the military history that, that he might discover in these papers. And we had been told by the family that there was some kind of story, some kind of drama that had unfolded at the very beginning of the Civil War, that had unfolded in the spring of 1861 as one of the ancestors tried to decide which way he was going to turn. Would he follow the Union or would he follow the Confederacy? Um, family tradition had it that this was a man who was serving as a U.S. Army officer at the time, stationed out in the West and trying to figure all of these things out. So the student of mine, Jim, the, the Marine, the irrepressibly curious one, um, said, I want to write my term paper about that story. I said, well, Jim, you know, almost nothing is known of the story besides what's come down in the oral tradition. He said, I'm going to find the truth here in this attic. So, you know, sometimes as a teacher you have to encourage your students' enthusiasm. Sometimes you have to tamp it down a little bit. And um, I said, well, Jim, you know, I know you haven't done any research in primary sources before, but, well, first of all, look at these papers. They're stuffed in willy-nilly. There's so many of them. They span so much time. And actually, eventually, when I got to know this collection better, it would turn out there were some 30,000 pages of documents. And they span the 1660s, these land deeds from the 1660s up to canceled checks from the 1970s. So there was everything in there. I said, Jim, look at this. There is no guarantee that you are going to find anything, even if the family gives us permission to look, that you'll find anything from this one guy, from this one year, and related to this one incident. In fact, the chances are, are pretty slim. But Jim, being that irrepressibly curious guy, and moreover being a, being a U.S. Marine, definitely was not going to take no for an answer. And you can only argue with an irrepressible student or a U.S. Marine to a certain point before I threw up my hands. And I said, okay, Jim, I'll tell you what, let's make a deal. I'll come down here with you if the family lets us on Saturday morning. I'll give you two hours to look through these papers with me. If we find anything fantastic, if not, you have to agree you're going to find another topic for your term paper. Okay, professor, it's a deal. So we come back down to Poplar Grove bright and early on Saturday. We start poking around up in this attic, and one of the first things I pull out of one of these lard cans is a big, thick sheaf of 19th century papers tied up in a ribbon that clearly hadn't been undone in many, many years, this yellow silk fraying ribbon. And written on the outside of the, of the wrapper around this bundle are the words, Major Emery's letters regarding his resignation from the U.S. Army, <laughs> spring 1861. <laughs> so you can imagine I did a double take and then a triple take, and then I looked at it, and then I handed it to my student, and I said, Jim, one thing you should know, it's not always this easy. <laughs> but... 
that day it was. And indeed, what we found inside this, this sheaf of papers, as those of you who have read 1861 may remember, was the extraordinary story of a man trying to decide which way to turn as the union that he had grown up with. Indeed, in, in some ways, the world as he had known it um, crumbled around him and the ground slipped out, the familiar ground slipped out from under his feet. He was stationed um, way out in Indian territory, as it was known then, what's now the state of Oklahoma, um, in command of a cavalry regiment at a frontier fort. And he was getting all these contradictory reports coming from back east, from Maryland, about what the Deep South was doing, what the border states were doing, what Maryland was likely to do. And based on these contradictory reports, he was trying to decide what, what he should do. His loyalties were, were deeply conflicted. On the one hand, he felt like he was a loyal Southerner, um, loyal to the institution of slavery, which he had grown up with, and his brother back on the family plantation was a uh, considerable by Eastern Shore standards slaveholder, which is to say he owned several dozen slaves. Um, great deal of the family wealth was, was bound up in those, in those assets. Um, although he also said after the war that he and others in his family had always felt a deep-seated, unspoken ambivalence about slavery. Even if they never said so, they knew that it was wrong, and part of them secretly wished to be, to be rid of it. So he felt those ambivalences. He also felt, um, as indeed many Virginians felt, torn between loyalty to the state and loyalty to the Union. He felt like a loyal Marylander, and yet he'd been serving under the Stars and Stripes literally since he was a 14-year-old taking the oath of allegiance at West Point as a cadet. He'd followed that flag into the war with Mexico, followed it into Indian wars, served it for nearly his entire life. How could he simply throw that away? So he's thinking about these sort of lofty political and moral dilemmas. But what also fascinated me was that he was thinking about much more personal dilemmas as well, taking into account um, much more private and, and in some ways you might even say uh, selfish considerations. He was thinking about his friendships with men who were on both sides of this quickly widening chasm. He was thinking about the fact that he had gone to West Point at the same time as Robert E. Lee, whom he looked up to and admired a great deal. He was close friends with Jefferson Davis, um, who was actually uh, so close to his family that his son was living with the Davises, living in the Davis household as the war began, boarding there while he was a, a medical student. Um, he was also he was thinking about his, his relatives. His, his wife was actually a Yankee from Philadelphia, like Paul Levengood and me. Um, but actually, uh, Mrs. Major Emery was much more Philadelphian than either Paul or I. Um, Mrs. Emery was the great-granddaughter of Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> and I can tell you that is about as Philadelphian as you can get. <laughs> and you might think that Mrs. Emery would be sort of pulling her husband in the other direction, saying, darling, you need to stay loyal to the Union. But in fact, interestingly enough, um, Mrs. Emery, I think like many husbands and wives um, then and now, was ready to support her spouse um, and support his ambitions, his career goals, and was thinking about this in very sort of calculating terms as to what would be better for his career. 
And he was thinking about this way too. He, he wrote in, in one letter, will I be strung up from the nearest tree as a traitor if I join this new Southern Republic? Or will I be hailed as the founding father of a great new American nation as indeed their grandparents and their great grandparents had, had been? And Mrs. Emery said basically, you know, honey, I'm ready to support you either way. If you think it's best for your career, I'll, I'll be there with you where you choose to go. And in one of her letters, she used a phrase that really jumped off the page and, and grabbed me. And those of you who have worked with, with primary sources before will, will know what I mean when I say that every so often, as you're reading through these yellowing pages, there's something that just jumps out and almost grabs you by the throat with its immediacy and pulls you into the past. And it's not always the sort of high-flown, grand rhetorical pronouncements. Sometimes it's just something incredibly simple, even a cliche, that brings home to you the humanness of these people living in the past. In this case, what Mrs. Emery wrote to her husband was this. She said, it is like a great game of chance. It is like a great game of chance. Hardly the undying um, rhetoric of Abraham Lincoln or Frederick Douglass or Robert E. Lee, but what that did for me was to roll away for an instant all of my awareness of what followed from that moment when she wrote those words in April of 1861. All of the mud and the blood and the suffering and the burning that have come to define the Civil War in our shared memory. Um, all of that was rolled away and I was in a moment when the very stakes themselves were unknown. What was to be gained was not yet known. Um, what was perhaps to be lost was certainly not yet known. And the Civil War was not yet this litany of battles um, that's almost Homeric power to these, to these resounding names one after another that we associate um, with the Civil War, Bull Run and Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville and Gettysburg, one after the other, but all that lay in the future and the Civil War was as yet a conflict that was being fought not on cornfields in Pennsylvania or wheat fields in Virginia, but in millions of, of individual American hearts and minds and thousands of American communities and families. And it was shortly after that that I decided to write a book that would try to recapture that moment, recapture that sense of a game of, a game of chance and of unknown stakes. So that's what I tried to do in, in 1861. Now, I thought I'd, I'd share um, with you, and I do also want to leave some, um, some time for, for Q&A at the end of my talk. Um, I thought I would share with you, since we're here in, in Richmond, just a couple of Virginia-related stories that are in my book. And rather than, than reading, I think I'll just um, summarize each of them for you, tell the stories um, a little bit just uh, extemporaneously. Um, and they both actually happen to be stories um, whose culminating moment is on the very same day, May 23rd, 1861. Now, May 23rd, um, 1861 was um, an important moment for actually coincidentally um, enough, a, a, a reason I don't talk about uh, so much in my, in my book, which is that um, it was when Maryland, I, I'm sorry, it was when Virginia actually seceded 
from, it voted to ratify its ordinance of secession from the United States. But these two other powerful incidents happened that day. The first one of them um, happened um, along the northern edge of the state, along the Potomac River, and involved a man named Elmer Ellsworth, whose um, story some of you may know a bit about. Elmer Ellsworth is typically um, one of those figures who appears in maybe a paragraph of a big book about the Civil War. But I often get fascinated. You know, I, I, I tried in this book to push characters like Lee and, and Davis and even Lincoln himself sort of as much into the background as I could. I love the characters who do rate only one paragraph or sometimes even only one footnote or sometimes even not that in the traditional histories. And Elmer Ellsworth is, is one of them. He was born in upstate New York um, to a very poor family in 1837. And he was one of these characters, one of these strange sort of child prodigies who seems to, from almost the moment that he could walk and talk and think, know exactly what he wanted to be in life. And that thing was a soldier. Um, when he was a little boy, he was playing um, at Revolutionary War soldiers using fragments of brick for the redcoats and fragments of wood for the Continental troops. Um, and he eventually, coming from a poor family as he, as he did, um, set out to seek his fortune and ended up out in Chicago, Illinois, um, working still in his late teens at the time, working as a clerk in a dry goods store, literally sleeping on the bare wooden floor of this shop at night. That was how little he had, um, and living on crackers and water. But still nursing these dreams of military glory, he would pour over any military drill manuals that he could get his hands on, or accounts in the newspapers and in the illustrated magazines that were just beginning to flourish at that moment of the exploits of the great armies of, of Europe that were clashing in the nationalist revolutions of 1848 and their, and their aftermaths in, in various parts of the old world. And he became especially fascinated by a particular kind of European soldier, um, the kind known as the Zouaves. The Zouaves were very strange, at least on the, on the surface. They were, these soldiers, they were originally of North African origin. They became um, elite troops in the French army. And they would go into battle wearing these sort of enormous baggy red harem pants and these little red fezes on their heads. And at a time when the traditional um, European and indeed American military drill um, went something like this, chunk, 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 turn, fire, chunk, 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 like these little sort of toy tin soldiers, the Zouaves would leap up into the air and turn somersaults and swirl their bayonets around and just jump and do all of these incredible sort of athletic um, tricks. They were sort of like a 19th century cross between the Cirque du Soleil and SEAL Team 6. Um, very, very unusual group of, group of people. And these became Ellsworth's fascination. Um, he wanted to be a Zouave. Now, the nearest Zouave was about 5,000 miles away from Chicago. So it was entirely unclear how this would happen until one day, um, Elmer Ellsworth had what I call his Luke Skywalker moment. 
You know, remember how like in that first Star Wars, um, Luke Skywalker meets Obi-Wan Kenobi who teaches him to be a Jedi Knight? Well, this Luke Skywalker met his Obi-Wan Kenobi in a Chicago gymnasium where he somehow encountered a man who was a French Zouave officer who had washed up in Chicago in the late 1850s. All kinds of people washed up in Chicago in the 1850s, I suppose. And this Zouave officer, after some arm twisting from Ellsworth, decided to teach him the Zouave moves. And indeed, Ellsworth proved himself to be a natural, just like Luke with his lightsaber. He immediately knew how to twirl his bayonet and jump and turn somersaults in the air. And indeed, Ellsworth himself was soon teaching the Zouave drill to other young men in Chicago. Um, and before long, they had formed their own um, regiment. Uh, this, this was, of course, the um, glory days of the volunteer militia military. They'd formed their own militia regiment, um, and they um, set out, indeed, on a tour of the United States as a sort of a, a novelty act, almost a circus act, um, where they would go to a, a, a town square or a park, and they would do their do their Zouave Cirque du Soleil act. And um, see, I get so carried away doing my Zouave <laughs> drill here. Um, yeah, I actually, it just occurred to me, like here I am, I, I've been talking about my book for a few months now on tour. What I really should have done was to learn some Zouave drill <laughs> myself so that, you know, can you imagine? Uh, maybe I could like, you know, have a, have a pen and like twirl while I sign the copies of the books or something like that. Anyway, probably, probably too late now. But uh, they would go and they would do their sort of Cirque du Soleil um, act on, on town greens and parks around the country. And by the time they had crossed um, from Illinois into Indiana and Ohio, they were quickly becoming a national sensation. Tens of thousands of people would come out and see them perform. By the time they got to New York City, 25,000 people um, turned up just not even to see them perform, but just at dawn in New York at the Steamboat Wharf to see them arrive in New York, this group of boys from Chicago. And by the time they got to Washington, they were invited to perform on the lawn of the White House by President Buchanan himself. This is in the summer of 1860, um, just a few months before secession began, and James Buchanan and all of his um, far-sighted political and military wisdom um, <laughs> gave them a few words of welcome and he said, um, you know, it's so fortunate that we have young Americans who have this kind of military prowess um, in the far-fetched event that we ever should fight a war against Britain or France. <laughs> that was James Buchanan for you in a nutshell. Um, so they became basically um, national rock stars. Ellsworth became a national sex symbol. But he really did. He was the first sex symbol in, in American history, and I think in, in world history, because it's interesting. One of the things that I write about a lot in, in this moment is the way that um, many different technologies converge to create the Civil War, and not just military technologies, but also communications technologies. And Ellsworth happened to leap onto the national stage, somersault onto the national stage, at the moment when um, photographs were first able to be easily mass reproduced. And so, as John Hay, Lincoln's secretary, said that um, his pictures sold in every shop in the land and schoolgirls swooned over the wave of his curls. <laughs> Sounds like a sex symbol to me. 
So anyway, um, Ellsworth had become a sex symbol, but perhaps the most important conquest of this victorious tour was one that he made on the very next to the last stop, um, when the Zouave cadets, before returning to Chicago, stopped in the Illinois capital to perform, performed on the courthouse square. And as they turned their somersaults, watching from beneath the shade of a tree was a man from Springfield, Illinois, who was the other most famous man in America that summer, and that, of course, was Abraham Lincoln, the Republican nominee for president, the man who it was becoming increasingly clear was likely to be elected in November and quite likely with catastrophic consequences for the Union. And Lincoln saw Ellsworth and was immediately drawn to this other very different man. It's not in entirely clear why, because Lincoln throughout his life was very guarded about his feelings. He didn't let people get very close to him. He had very few close friendships or emotional relationships in his life, but he and Ellsworth seemed to have bonded immediately. And indeed, he invited Ellsworth to drop everything as the leader of the Zouaves, come and stay with him and, and work as his law clerk, um, and basically just sort of keep him company. Now, Lincoln's actual law clerks said that they never saw a law clerk who did less actual law clerking than Elmer Ellsworth. Basically, his job was to hang out and be Lincoln's little buddy. And pretty soon, in fact, um, people were saying that he was like a son or like a brother to the man who, who very shortly thereafter was president-elect. Ellsworth accompanied um, the Lincoln family to Washington when they took their epic train journey through the states. And about six weeks later, when the Civil War began, when Fort Sumter was attacked, um, Ellsworth saw finally that his moment had arrived, his moment um, when he would have a chance to shine forth in his full glory, not just on the circus ground, but on the battlefield itself. And so he formed a new Zouave company out of the roughest, toughest, bruisingest, meanest, brawlingest group of men that he could find in the entire North, um, by which, of course, I mean the New York City Fire Department. <laughs> These were guys who could fight and did. Um, and woe betide you if your house happened to be the one on fire because they were usually too busy beating each other up to actually put out the blaze. But, uh, but Ellsworth said, in a fortnight I can turn these men into the finest Zouave soldiers in the world. And he did bring this regiment to, to Washington, um, quartered them in the Capitol itself under the unfinished dome of the Capitol they camped out. And sure enough, um, when it came time on the night of, uh, of May 23rd, when uh, Virginia officially seceded, to send the first detachments of federal troops across the Potomac um, to begin to occupy Virginia, um, Ellsworth sought and was granted the honor of being one of uh, the first men to cross over, indeed to, to lead the first detachment of troops to set foot on Virginia soil. Um, unfortunately, he jumped off the boat onto the wharf in Alexandria um, to discover that he had been beaten to the punch. Another Union officer had managed to sneak in just ahead of him and arrange for the Confederate capitulation of the town, actually a very ignominious capitulation. He basically, this Union officer said, uh, if you give us Alexandria, you can just evacuate all of your troops on that convenient locomotive over there. So Ellsworth arrived literally to see the Confederate soldiers waving goodbye from the caboose, basically, as they, as they pulled out of town. But he was dead set on military glory. And 
he spotted, as he led a small squad of soldiers through um, Alexandria, he spotted something that was familiar to him, a familiar sight from Washington. And that was an enormous Confederate flag, 24 feet wide, the original 1861 stars and bars flag that was flying from the roof of a hotel called the Marshall House in Alexandria. It was such a large flag that it could even be seen from the upper windows of the White House itself. And indeed, Abraham and Mary Lincoln um, would stand up there and look out through a spyglass at this flag. And the story goes that Mary Lincoln had actually said to Elmer Ellsworth, first thing you do when you cross over into rebel territory is I want you to take down that flag so we don't have to look at it anymore. And that's exactly what Ellsworth decided to, to do. Um, so he rather impulsively, hot-headedly, led this little squad of soldiers um, into the hotel, this sort of um, two-bit, second-rate Alexandria hotel, went charging um, up the stairs to the roof. As they were walking up um, the stairs, this sort of disheveled, tired-looking man came out of a room and said, can I help you? What's going on here? And um, they uh, just sort of brushed him aside and went on about their, their business. They cut down the, the halyards that were holding the flag up. Um, Ellsworth is coming down the stairs with this flag draped over his shoulder, um, and suddenly stepping out on, onto the landing is the same man that they had just seen, and this time he's holding a double-barreled shotgun, which he points and fires both barrels into Ellsworth's chest, directly into his heart. It tears him open. He's dead almost instantly. And in just the same moment, in just almost the same second, one of the soldiers with Ellsworth turns with his musket, fires it point blank into the Virginian's face, killing him almost instantly. And so literally in a matter of a few seconds, both of these living, breathing men, one northern and one southern, are lying dead on the stairs of this squalid hotel with their blood pouring out of their bodies and intermingling and staining the folds of this fallen Confederate flag. Now, as you can imagine, the, the Zouaves, the firemen Zouaves were, were distraught um, when this happened, distraught to lose their, lose their fallen commander. Um, they placed Ellsworth's body on a stretcher of muskets, placed the flag, the bloodstained flag on his chest, carried it down to a, steam, a steamer that was waiting at the, at the wharf, one of the steamers that had just ferried the troops across, and sent him back across the river to Washington, just a matter of a couple of hours since he had crossed over in great anticipation of, of triumph. Um, word reached Lincoln at the White House. Um, the body was eventually carried and laid in state in the East Room of the White House its chest heaped up with lilies. And um, Lincoln was inconsolable. Um, he stood over Ellsworth's body and said, my boy, my boy, was it necessary this sacrifice should be made? And indeed, Ellsworth became the first hero and martyr of the war. Um, I found that uh, there were some, just as one measure of the outpouring of Northern grief over his death, in the Civil War years that followed, over the next four years, I've managed to, to find at least 20,000 northern babies who were named after Elmer Ellsworth. Um, it's amazing what you can do with online databases now, <laughs> um, keyword searches and all that. But uh, 
it was, um, it was a remarkable moment. And it's a remarkable moment for me, not just because of the, of the drama of it, which I tell much more of in a couple of the chapters of my, of my book, and, and it's really a more remarkable story than I've been able to convey today, but also because it brought home to me the fact that of all of the American families that would feel the pain and the loss of the war at first hand over the next four years. Indeed, there would be no American family that would be spared with somewhere between 600 and 700,000 people dead in that conflict. That the Lincoln family, in fact, was one of the very, very first to feel that personal loss, to, to see one of their own fallen in war. And I think it goes far to explain, in fact, Lincoln's transformation in those early months of the war and the development of his sense of resolve that this was something that was to be um, pursued and, and won no matter almost what the sacrifice. Now, um, I, I, uh, I see that we're, uh, I've been speaking for a little while now, so I don't want to go into too much depth with the second Virginia story that I'm going to tell, but I'll just speak about that for a couple of minutes um, before opening things up to questions. And that's something else that happened um, on the night of May 23rd and morning of May 24th, 1861, just as the events that I've been describing with Ellsworth occurred. This was an event that happened with considerably less fanfare, no flourishes of drums or playing of, of bugles or marching of troops, but rather with the quiet escape of three African-American slaves at the other end of the state of Virginia, um, down at Hampton Roads at the mouth of the James River, where local slaves had been conscripted into um, constructing fortifications for the Confederate Army. Um, this was very common during the war, including the early days of the war. I found another um, Richmond newspaper um, editorial that said, our brave cavaliers will do the fighting while our Negroes will do the shoveling. This was the sort of the Confederate war plan very, very seriously. So these um, African-American Virginians were among those who had been conscripted to work on the Confederate fortifications. And they'd been working on these fortifications for, oh, probably a couple of weeks when they decided that they really would rather not be Confederates, thank you very much. Um, they would really rather go over to the Union side. And so they um, apparently stole a small boat, rowed across the James River, and presented themselves at the gates of Fort Monroe. Fort Monroe, which still stands today. How many of you have visited Fort Monroe before? Great. Well, it, uh, it looks indeed much as it did in the, in the 19th century when it was a, a sort of a, a lonely outpost of Union territory in the midst of rebel Virginia as the war began. And so they saw this as a possible safe haven and presented themselves asking for, uh, for asylum. Now, it was by no means clear at this point that they would be given shelter in the fort. After all, um, Lincoln had made it clear from the top down, the Union had made it clear this was not to be a war over ending slavery. Lincoln had said in his inaugural address, I have no intention of interfering with slavery anywhere it exists. I have no right to do so. And indeed, um, throughout the South, where, wherever there were federal troops, wherever slaves had been escaping to them already um, in those early days of the conflict, they had been directly sent back in compliance with the federal fugitive slave laws. And this was what might have been expected to happen at, uh, at Fort Monroe. But the commander at Fort Monroe happened to be um, an interesting and rather complicated man. 
General Benjamin Butler, known um, later in the war by a, by a variety of unflattering nicknames, um, one of which was Beast Butler, which you can understand if you've ever seen a picture of him, not an attractive man, to say the least. Um, another one was Spoons Butler, and the reason he was called Spoons Butler is that allegedly he stole the silverware from one of the houses where he was quartered during the war in, in Louisiana. And so years later, when Butler ran for president um, as a Republican, Democratic hecklers would stand in the back of the hall heckling him by yelling, Spoons, 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 <laughs> drowning out his poor, poor guy. I mean, whatever you think of Butler, you have to feel sort of sorry for him. Um, as, as another measure, by the way, of how loathed he was, uh, last month I spoke at the Massachusetts Historical Society in, in Boston, and as I was signing books um, at, the, at the end, um, a curator came up wearing white gloves and set down a piece of chinaware on the table next to me. When I had a chance to look at it, I saw that it was a chamber pot. First, I wondered if they were telling me something about my performance on stage. Um, at least the chamber pot wasn't full. But, uh, um, but, they, uh, but in fact, when I took a closer look inside the, the chamber pot, um, what I saw smiling or more like glowering up at me was the face of General Benjamin Butler. <laughs> Actually printed in, on the bottom of this chamber pot, um, which apparently chamber pots like this were standard issue on the steamboats and trains of Louisiana during Reconstruction. Um, it may not surprise you to, to hear. Um, and of course, Massachusetts people would, you know, carpetbaggers would ride those trains and steal the chamber pots and send them back up north, which is how the Massachusetts Historical Society ended up with a whole shelf full of them, <laughs> souvenirs. Anyway, not in many ways an attractive man. But, uh, but General Butler um, also was um, a very canny politician, a very canny lawyer, and also recognized that there at Fort Monroe, he was besieged by Confederate forces. These three slaves had been used building fortifications to mount guns aimed directly at him and his men, and he'd be damned if he was going to send them back to the rebels. So the following day, um, when a Virginia militia officer, John Baytop Carey, came riding up the causeway to Fort Monroe under flag of, of truce to parley with General Butler um, and ask for his slaves back General Butler told him on no uncertain terms that he would not be getting them back. And uh, perhaps I'll just, I'll read you very quickly the conversation that, uh, that ensued. Um, a conversation that um, sounds almost too good to be, to be true, um, but actually was written down by, by Butler and years after the war when Butler wrote his memoirs, um, he actually wrote to Major Carey who was still alive and I believe actually living here in Richmond and said, uh, Major Carey, remember me, it's General Butler from the war. We had this interesting conversation in May of 1861, and here's how I remember it. Is this how you remembered it? And Carey said, oh, yes, I've told that story so many times over the years. That's exactly the way I remember it, he wrote back to Butler. So the, the two men agreed that this is how it, it happened. Um, Major Carey said to General Butler, I am informed that three Negroes have escaped within your lines. I have charge of this property. What do you mean to do with those Negroes? And Butler said, I intend to hold them. Major Carey reminds him of the Fugitive Slave Act and says, do you mean then to set aside your constitutional obligation to return them? 
And Butler smiles to himself because being a good attorney as he was in private life, he's been reading up on his military law. And Butler has, has noticed that there's such a thing known as the law of contraband that means that in wartime, if a commander finds, say, a shipment of swords or muskets, goods that are being used to promote, to promote the cause of the, of the enemy, he is allowed to impound them and hold them as contraband of war. And so what Butler has basically decided is, okay, if you Southerners insist on treating humans as property, I'll treat them as property as well. And I'll seize them just as I would do with a shipment of muskets or sabers. And that's what he decides to do. And so he says to Major Carey, he says, I mean to take Virginia at her word as declared in the ordinance of secession passed yesterday. I am under no constitutional obligations to a foreign country, which Virginia now claims to be. Major Carey in befuddlement says, but you say we cannot secede, and so you cannot consistently detain the Negroes. <laughs> Butler says, but you say you have seceded, so you cannot consistently claim them. I shall hold these Negroes as contraband of war since they are engaged in the construction of your battery and are claimed as your property. Um, so indeed, he decides to take Virginia at its word, as it were. And it won't surprise you to know that the day after that, um, the day after these, these three slaves arrived at the fort, another eight slaves arrived knocking at the front door asking for admittance. The day after that, 47 slaves arrived at the fort, including this time not only able-bodied men who'd been put to work on the fortifications, but women carrying infants in their arms, um, young children, old people. There was one, I was reading one of these descriptions and it described one old person who had been, who was 85 years old when uh, this, it doesn't even say if it's a man or a woman, but when this slave escaped um, to the Union lines, 85 years old. As I, I did the math in my head and I realized that that meant that this person was born in 1775 or 1776. So the year that we associate with American freedom and independence, that they had waited almost a century from that, an entire long lifetime to claim some measure of freedom for themselves. And uh, I think I'll wrap up there because that's uh, sort of the, the beginning of one of the stories that I tell in my book, a story of how um, the road to freedom began here in Virginia, began at Fort Monroe and um, indeed began at this fort that, as Paul Levengood mentioned, um, has just this month um, become a national monument, a national park, the first one to be declared by President Obama um, in his presidency, a very, very exciting development for the United States and for Virginia. So I'll close there and take any questions you may have. I believe there's a microphone that will be circulated in the audience. And I'll also, I should mention, be signing books um, shortly after this concludes. Yes, sir. Uh, did Jim write his term paper? And if so, did you include in your book? Uh, Jim, Jim did write his term paper. And um, as you might guess, he got an A on it. Um, did he go with the South or with the North? <laughs> uh, did Jim or did the, uh, did the major? The major. The major um, actually went with the North, although it was a, it was a bit of a, of a saga there because what happened was he, after a great deal of soul searching, decided it somewhat similar to General Lee, to Colonel Lee at that, at that point, that he couldn't fight against his native state. 
Um, and so he decided that um, if Maryland seceded, he would resign from the army and, and go into private life. And so what he did was he wrote a letter of resignation, um, undated, and sent it to his brother back in Maryland with instructions that this would be posted if and when and only if and when Maryland seceded from the Union. It got to his brother. His brother was an ardent secessionist, filled in the date, <laughs> licked a stamp, sent it off to the War Department in Washington, and Major Emery, to his great surprise, gets a message from the War Department out in Oklahoma saying, thank you very much. You were hereby relieved of your services pursuant to your letter of April 17th. Um, thanks for your service and, and goodbye. Um, it's very awkward for Emory, especially because at this point, um, which of course is weeks and weeks later, Maryland has not seceded. Um, and he has decided to stay loyal to the Union. And indeed, he has captured what were probably the very first Confederate prisoners of war of the entire Civil War. So he comes back towards Washington. He and his wife sort of converged on the Lincoln White House and War Department to beg them to accept him back and rescind this resignation, which they grudgingly did. But unfortunately, his, his uh, loyalty was tarnished throughout the rest of the war, and it really hurt his career. I think he might well have become um, an important Union general as it was. He was just a quite successful Union colonel. Another question? Whatever happened to Jim? Did he graduate? Jim is actually, he's graduating this year because he was a freshman at that time and he also took a year off to go and, and uh, fight in Afghanistan in Helmand province. And um, you know, it was remarkable because Jim was really sort of with me all through this book in many ways. He's one of those extraordinary students that every teacher is, is lucky to have once in a great long while. And we were writing to each other while he was in Afghanistan and these letters would arrive you know, in these little sort of crumpled up envelopes written on torn sheets of notebook paper. And I felt like I was getting letters from the front in the Civil War. And as he wrote also about some of the terrible experiences that he was having on the front lines there, it really, as I wrote my book, kind of brought home to me the experience of these ordinary people going off to fight. So one more question, I think. Uh, it was quite interesting, uh, your comments about uh, Lincoln's um, uh, uh, captivation by, was it uh, Ellsworth? Ellsworth, Elmer yeah. Ellsworth. Yeah. Um, after Ellsworth's death and burial, is there any, uh, that you've been able to find any reference that Lincoln made to him um, as far as, you know, talking about it in conversations with Hay or, yeah. you know, so, something like that? You know, he actually, he wrote one of his extraordinary letters of condolence. He wrote several letters of condolence during the war that are just masterpieces of concision and restrained passion, I guess I would, I would say. And um, one of them was to Ellsworth's parents. Um, in which he he spoke of his feelings, spoke of their of their friendship, um, but beyond that, we really don't have much. We have accounts of things that he said in the immediate aftermath of Ellsworth's death, but all that we have really beyond that is um, I found one intriguing mention that said that people were afraid to mention Ellsworth's name in front of Lincoln because when Ellsworth's name was mentioned, he would become extremely emotional, um, even even long after Ellsworth's death. So it certainly stayed with him. So uh, with that, I hope that you'll read more of those stories in my book. And it's been a real pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you.